We've been talking, this series is If I Only Had a Brain. And it's how uh, Christ, who's called the logos in scripture, which is a, a Greek word for truth, how he is the truth. And when we kick him out of our heads, we are out of our minds. And uh, we said last week that uh, you are what you eat. And even more true is you are what you think. You are what you think. And our culture is in desperate need of renewed and transformed thinking. We're more depressed and anxious and suicidal than any other time in history. Uh, uh, suicide, anxiety, and depression rates have doubled among young people since 2008, which was not that long ago. Uh, our thinking shapes our attitude, it forges our character, it determines our behavior, it changes our emotions, and even influences our immune system, our physical health. We've been, we said last week in so many words that our thinking sucks, didn't we? As a culture, that our thinking, we become intellectually lazy, lazy we become overly sensitive, where we only want to hear and deal with our opinions and not the opinions of others. We become more closed-minded than ever, uh, more easily offended, uh, and we've become more isolated, that all of us, to one degree or another, we've said are addicted to the internet in the form of social media, pornography, shopping, gaming, you name it. And we actually talk to people more with our fingers typing on our phones or computers more than we do with our voices. So we have a sense of being connected, but we're really quite isolated. And it is, we put up this social front of being together while we... Uh, become more and more depressed and isolated behind that screen. So we said last, we looked at what the Bible and neuroscience said about the destruction and the uh, degrading of our minds in our culture today and the inability to think critically. But the Bible really is the best book on psychology. And this is what it says about the mind. And this is our anchor verse for this series. Romans 12 verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know what God's will is for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. When you look at the language in which the Bible was written, the more literal translation of this verse would be this. Be progressively transformed by the constant renewing of your mind. This is permanent and fluid for the believer, meaning it continues. It, our mind is transformed. It's salvation. We have the ability to walk out a transformed mind, but we are continually, progressively transformed as we walk through this life. And that process continues until we get to the other side of eternity. And it's important to add here that the mind uh, in this early church and Roman culture would have been more than just human thinking more than intellect, as we like to think of the mind. We, we think the mind is simply our intellect. But what they envisioned was character, the inner disposition, the motivating center of our personal and communal lives. The mind, in short, is what makes us us. And this word transformation comes from an English word, metamorphosis. Think, you know, caterpillar into a butterfly and all that good stuff. So it's not just change of appearance, it's change of essence. Our minds are given the ability at salvation to function the way God wanted them to function all along. What sin took away, which is our ability to think with the author of truth at the center, we get back through salvation. And the perspective on mental transformation in this church would have been communal not just individual. 
Paul, the writer of this letter to the early church at Rome, was led by God to demonstrate the characteristics of this new humanity that God was creating through Christ. A new humanity that thought pure, admirable, lovely, life-giving thoughts. Thoughts that can change the world. Jesus is the author of every good thought about social justice, about loving people, about family, about community, you name it, he's the author. And he's the answer to all that's broken we see around us and in us. We said last week that it's impossible to be in our right minds when we kick God out of our heads. It simply can't happen. We can't have transformed thinking without the transformer in us. Meaning the concept of logos we discussed last week that the ancient Greeks sought out uh, in the apparent order of the universe that they saw around them, that that logos, that truth, dwelled among us in the form of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Jesus came to earth because we all turned our back on him. We all thought, every single one of us thought, or maybe still do, think that we can do life on our own. Sin is simply, sin isn't so much behavior as much as it is, is living life without God. Living life without God at the center of our life. That's, that is sin. God doesn't measure sin the way we do. So your sin is better than mine or worse than mine or whatever. He just sees sin, and our only hope is salvation through Christ. Because when we receive Christ, he doesn't see sin. He doesn't see life without God. He sees our lives in him. He sees his son. We can have right thinking with the creator of our brains leading the charge because he gives us the ability, supernaturally, to transform our thinking. In Philippians 4.8, Paul says to this church, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. You see those words, fix and think. We can change our thoughts. We can, we can fix ourselves on changing our thoughts, which will in turn change our emotions and then our behavior. Right? Because someone can't think depressed thoughts and then behave in a way that's not depressed. Not for long. Right? We are what we think. We do what we think. Our relationships are based on what we think. But it requires disciplined thinking that actually honors and values truth. And I challenged us last week to not be intellectually lazy, but to stick it out through this, this series and truly ask, is Jesus the truth? Not do I feel that he might be true, but is he the truth? And to allow yourselves to be disequilibrated, that is, to allow yourself to be shook up. Allow yourself to truly think, to not be intellectually lazy, but to truly seek out, is Jesus, this one that millions and millions and millions have followed, is he the truth? But transformational thinking is a habit we have to learn. It's not natural. We're not born with the ability to think transformationally. Our thoughts come before our feelings and our actions. And I want to, I want to give a word of caution before we get too deep in this connection between our mind and our emotions. Because in today's culture, we're told that what we feel determines what's truth. So if something feels true, it must be true. If something doesn't feel true, it's not true. And that's a lie. We're the only generation in American history that's had that thought, secular or sacred. 
previously in our country, what's true is based on what's true. Is it, is it a fact or not? Uh, our thoughts come before our feelings and our actions. For example, unhappy people can complain incessantly about their mis miserable feelings without realizing they can change those feelings through healthier thinking. Do you know that Jesus gives the ability to change the way we feel by changing the way we think. By cleaning up our minds, it cleans up our soul and it cleans up our emotions. We can't control our, our feelings directly, only indirectly through our thoughts. We can't change our past. We can't change our future, but we can fix our thinking. We have control over our thoughts. And this important truth of focusing on our thoughts before putting too much stock in our emotions is a struggle because our culture tells us to what? Follow your, follow your heart. That is a dumb lie. And I'm going to speak highly of emotions in just a second. Don't worry. So don't leave quite yet. There have been many people I've counseled over the years that have followed their hearts into adultery and have destroyed their kids' hearts in the process. I've seen many people destroy, people very close to me, destroy ones in their life because they followed their heart. But emotions, I, I promised I would. Emotions are a good indicator. They're not the only one, but they're a good indicator. Um, and you guys know I'm all about this heart stuff. Emotions are insanely important. It's all over scripture, especially the Psalms. God gave us our emotions. But it's like the, uh, is it the, the carbon monoxide detector or the smoke detector that always goes off when you guys take a shower? So the smoke alarm. Smoke alarm goes off by my kid's shower. Those are my kids. That's why I'm asking about this. So they have a shower right by uh, the smoke. Yeah, people are looking at me like, why are they asking you? Does this pastor always ask about your hygiene habits in public? It's kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, what toilet paper do you use? No, I'm just kidding. So uh, anyway, they take a shower, and the steam makes the smoke detector go off. Now, do I, so we've had about 40 to 50 million false alarms probably. It's quite annoying. Do I throw away the smoke detector just because it doesn't, you know, it hasn't had a, a proper warning yet, a correct warning? No, but it's up to me to determine whether or not I pay attention to it or not. I mean, wouldn't it be weird if I just ran out of the house screaming, the house is on fire 40 million times? That would be very odd, right? So it is with our emotions. It's, us to, it's up to us to discern with the Holy Spirit's help do I need to pay attention to these emotions or are these just, are these just leading me down a rabbit trail that's going to distract me from, from God and what he wants me to be focused on? Uh, so we can't follow our hearts. When Paul the Apostle wrote a letter to the early church at Galatia, he says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That is, if we follow our hearts, we will reap what we sow. We'll suffer the consequences. Uh, farmers understand this principle. If we don't throw seed in the soil, nothing's going to come up, right? And if you plant soybeans, you're not going to get barley. You're going to get what you throw into the ground. So it is with life. If we sow laziness and stress, then we'll reap illness in a short life. If we sow bitterness and resentment, we'll reap misery and gloom. If we sow service and hard work, we'll reap for the most part, satisfaction and stability. It may not be our whole life, but that will be the theme of our life if that's what we reap. The analogy of seed also helps us to clarify that bad thoughts are keeping with this same agricultural illustration. Weeds represent bad thoughts. Weeds obey different laws from seeds of good plants. By their very nature, weeds don't 
uh, need care and cultivation. I've never heard somebody say, man, I've been working really hard on these weeds. I've got a green thumb. I never thought this thing would grow taller than my head, which I have a weed in my backyard. I haven't mowed the lawn this summer. My boys have. And one of my sons, there's two, and I'm not throwing either one of you under the bus, but one of you, uh, didn't mow this particular weed, and then eventually they thought it was a flower. So there's a weed in my backyard that's like this tall. They didn't have to work for that. All right, that just grew that way. Uh, and they don't like to do weed whacking either, so, or one of them doesn't. So uh, the other one does a good job, and he's in the will. The other one's been out, so uh, I'll let you guys figure out which one that is. Uh, weeds are, you know, really hard to eradicate, and so it is with our unhealthy thoughts. This is not easy, but we can do it through Christ. We have one who takes our gloomy, self-deprecating, selfish, self-pitying, lustful, and materialistic thoughts and fixes our thoughts instead on what is true, honorable, and right, and pure, and lovely. He does, he fixes our, he promises, that's a promise that we have in Christ, that he'll fix our thoughts on those things. If you're depressed, what are you thinking about? If you're discouraged, if you're despondent, if you're lonely, what are you thinking about? Your thoughts are focused on those things, and we don't have to think about things that are destructive. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, it goes as far as to say, we have the very mind of Christ, isn't that awesome? We share in the mind of Christ. So how do we practically walk this out, this transformational thinking we have in Christ? Uh, we're going to look at 10 transformations over the next couple weeks that take place in the mind of the Christ follower. And tonight, we're just going to look at three. Don't worry. Some of you are looking at me like, man, he, why can't he do the five-minute thing like he did with the membership? And just, no, this, we're, we're, we're on our way. The first transformation, and this is a good one, to see the good in others. Right, Christ pursued us even when we were very unlovely. The first transformation of mind is to see the good in others. Just listen to what others say behind the backs of your coworkers, family, and friends. Is it, it probably isn't this. You know, Steve, he's such a hard worker. The other day, I saw him help somebody with the copy machine, and he didn't have to do that. He was super busy. You know what it really is? It's usually, man, did you see the way Steve was kissing up to the boss? Man, what a tool. He's so fake. He doesn't really care about anybody in this. That's the kind of stuff you hear, right? Uh, but God says in Romans 5, 8, he says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were still drowning in our sins, we had nothing to offer. We were very unlovely. He paid the penalty for our sins that we deserved because of his love for us. And he commands us to love. In John 15, verse 12, he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. I mean, that's a, that's a tall order, isn't it? To love as Christ loved. And it's a command. It's a command. Notice he doesn't command us to like everyone. And I'm so glad he doesn't. He doesn't command us to like everyone. And we don't want to confuse like with love. Because our like mechanism is fickle isn't it? Insanely fickle. The person this week, your neighbor who you love because they're so cheerful, next week you're going to hate, uh, you know, another person, a student in your class that's so cheerful because you think that they're a fake, right? And you think they're not genuine. Our, our like meter is way screwed up. It changes all the time. 
So because of that, God kicks it out of his kingdom. It has no place in God's kingdom. Nowhere in the Bible do we read about liking. We read about love. We're even required to love to the point of loving our enemies. Liking is irrelevant to God. There are three keys to help us see the good in others. First, recognize that you are unlovely, and so am I. We all have an unlovely side which causes others to dislike us from time to time, and remembering this humbles us and reminds us not to judge others for being unlovely and unlikable. Let me ask you a question. Why are we so shocked when someone doesn't like us, but we're not shocked that we don't like other people? Isn't that true? Yeah, and and you know what I think we need to ask ourselves? How would I feel if someone was saying what I'm saying right now or what I'm listening to right now if that was being said about me? You know, we can't even let those those kind of words or negative uh, comments come out of our mouths. But the best antidote for being disliked is to love back. I'll never forget, I was in college and I was playing tennis with a friend and uh, uh, we were just goofing around and making all kinds of just, you know, just joking around. This guy, in my mind, he was like 6'5", 700 pounds. I'm sure he was not that big, but he, he starts making fun of me and my friend. Now, my track record, like Kimball, I come from a background before Christ where, where I thoroughly enjoyed fighting. And I would have just run over to this guy and hit him. With, I mean, it would have been like a bonus deal. Oh, he's... He's talking smack, and I've got a club in my hand. This is a win-win. This is Christmas and Easter and my birthday all wrapped up in one. I would have ran out there and beaten the guy with him you know, anyway. But Jesus redeemed me, and he changed my heart, and now I'm a softy, you know. Uh, and uh, so I yelled at the guy. I was, you know, I was a fairly new believer. I'd maybe been following Christ for four or five years, and I wanted to hurt him so badly. But what came out of my mouth, and this was a miracle, I was like, Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. How has that changed your life? <laughs> Steve, did that just happen? You know, and he just up, 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 and walked away. You know, I'm sure he was looking for a fight, and he didn't get it, but he got a very aggressive uh, <laughs> witness, very aggressive testimony. So anyway... The second thing is put aside emotional reactions, okay? We don't have to be controlled by our likes or dislikes. Who cares if you don't like the person or they get on your nerves? Suck it up. Remember that Jesus saved you when you were very unlovely and pray for compassion. Finally, remember that every person is loved by God. Pray that Jesus would preach the gospel to yourself and I need to do the same for me. Remember the gospel. Ask the Lord to make it fresh in our minds and hearts and pray for Christ-like love for that person. Being overly critical, gossiping, and assuming the worst about others is not only a sin, it destroys our minds. Studies show that it's unhealthy. We develop ruts in our thinking that see through a negative and destructive lens. If you've grown up in a family where someone's got a very long blacklist and they're always talking negatively about others, you need to tell them you're just not going to listen to it anymore. You're not going to listen to it. People at the office, I'm not, you're not going to listen to it. It is bad for our thinking. If someone was deathly ill and blowing snot everywhere, you'd probably keep your distance, wouldn't you? Well, it's the same when people are gossips, when they lack compassion, when they're always talking negatively about people. Um, all right, enough there. I'm, I'm taking too much time. The second transformation of our thinking 
that we have available to us in Christ. Give yourself permission to fail. Okay, and this might seem silly, but stick with me because many of us beat ourselves up when we fail. Uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but way back in 1986, Robin Williams starred in a movie titled The Best of Times. Any takers? Wow. Man, now I feel really old. Uh, But he played a man who couldn't accept failure. You see, when he was in high school, he missed a, like, last-second touchdown pass, and he just beat himself up about it. He, he couldn't live with that failure, and it affected his whole life. So he recreated the game. He actually got both teams in the movie to show up, and, you know, they're like 38, 40, something like that. And, uh, uh, it, you know, of course, as only movies can do, it gets down to the final seconds, and he makes the catch, you know, and changes the trajectory of his life. And, you know, if only life worked out that way, where we got second chances with all our failures. But it, it doesn't, does it? And I know I've dropped a lot of passes along the way, and my guess is you have as well. So what do we do when we fail? What do we do when we fail? When the test comes back and it was more than we bargained for and it's bleeding red all over the place with a great big F circled with red staring us back in the face. Do do, do professors still do that? Give you like a letter grade on your paper? Yeah. Um, When the person we love deeply decides they don't want to date or marry us, when your stomach is in knots because you failed more interviews than you can count, where do you turn? The reality is we turn to God because he often speaks louder to us through our failures than he does our successes. In 1 Peter 1.7, it says these, speaking of trials, have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The saint who suffered the most has the strongest testimony, don't they? And oftentimes that testimony includes failure. Trials come, they're allowed by God, but not caused by him to help us grow closer to him, which is the greatest gift he can give us himself. You see, there's a myth floating around the churches today that says God is only interested in our success. There's whole denominations that teach that. It's called the prosperity gospel, and it's a lie. It's a huge lie because God's not in the success business. He's in the refining business. So why is it human nature do you think, to hate failure? Well, for starters, we wrongly confuse failing with being a failure. And I've got great news for you. A teaching that I heard some time ago now, several years, by Rick Warren. I was listening to it, and he said, and this is true from Scripture, our primary purpose in life, our number one purpose that God gives us is what? To be loved by God. To be loved by God, not to love God, Because the Bible says we love God because he first loved. Good. Good job. You're just like the kids. You're learning from the kids here. Yeah, because he loved us. Now, our second purpose is to love God, but we can only love him because he loves us. So if we live our lives enjoying the love of God, we can't fail. If the focus of every day is I want to enjoy the love of Christ today more than I did yesterday, we can't fail. Plus, failure often helps us to understand God's love at a deeper level. We, we may understand what love is in our heads, but when we fail, our hearts are softened and we depend on God more. Uh, our greatest failures can be our greatest opportunities to draw near to God, and the Bible is filled with failures. 
This church is filled with failures. This church is here because of a failure. Did you know that? Uh, I'm not going to tell you the story behind it. I'm just going to move on. I was just, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you the story. So uh, we planted almost 11 years ago now. And uh, the core of the church came from Linworth Road Church, the church that sent us out. And I was on staff at Linworth for a number of years. And uh, uh, I was the youth pastor. And the youth ministry had been, had been fruitful. And I transitioned out of youth ministry. And when I did, it seemed like just nothing was working. The ministries I was involved in, I wasn't passionate about. It just, it just seemed like nothing was growing. I was praying. I was fasting. I was talking to people. Nothing seemed to happen. So we started talking about a church plant at the very beginning stages and threw around a bunch of cities we might plant in and all that good stuff. And it was announced. Chris and Becky Old with the team are going to plant a church. It was announced at our vision meeting in front of hundreds of people. And guess what? I felt like a few months later, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Man, God, this is going to be humiliating, but I'm not ready. So I had to kind of back off of that. There were some very sad people And I had to go back into these ministries that I wasn't excited about. And I just, God didn't seem to be in, at least for me. I wasn't the right guy. I fired myself from a few of the ministries I was involved in because just God wasn't using me. Um, So I then at one point thought, well, maybe God's calling me to go to another church and serve there. So I did an interview just for the heck of it. 13 interviews later with that same church, 13 at one church with 13 different entities. It was crazy. Uh, they, They even said, hey, you can plant a church out of this church with 200 people because it was a large church. Becky and I sat down in the car and we thought, this isn't what God wants us to do. So I'm right back into these ministries, staring out my office window, wondering, you know, what the heck is God doing? And I had to put on the altar the church plant and even my vocation as a pastor and hold it loosely. And when I did that, a couple years later, Awaken just, it just happened. I mean, God just, he, he put all the dominoes in place for Awaken to happen. It really, it really came out of me having to fail and, and be tempted to throw in the towel for that to happen. When we fail, we take a closer look at our identity. We're not what we do. We are who God says we are in his word. He's our creator. I mean, think about it. When do you ever open up, you and I, when do we open up a instruction manual or look online for an instruction manual? When things going well with the product and we know how to use it? No, when we face trouble, we, we want to fix it. We don't know how to use it properly. So we open up the manual. If we want to learn how to use an item that we possess, we have two choices. We can talk to the creator, the one who designed it, or we can open the manual. And we have both in Christ. We have the word of God, which explains our purpose, why we're here, and what God wants for us, and how he can change our thinking. And we also can talk to him in prayer. We have both. And we we tend to read the manual and talk to our creator with more intensity and more dependence when we failed, because it brings out all of our insecurities, and he can get us on the operating table and uh, fix us up. Along the same lines, the last transformation is keep your conscience clear. This is probably the most difficult habit because no other emotion is more prone to self-deception than our built-in sense of knowing right from wrong. Our thinking needs to be based on keeping our conscience clear. Christ has given us his mind, and we can have a clear conscience. You see, our consciences can uh, be cleaned by God, it says in Hebrews 9.14. 
It says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Because Jesus paid the penalty for sin that we deserved, he freed us from the tyranny of sin leading to death so we might enjoy the abundant life he has for us in his kingdom of joy. We can't really clear our consciences on our own because our consciences, they're deceptive, aren't they? I mean, Hitler had a clear conscience about the Holocaust, right? I mean, he wanted to do that. He planned it over years and years and years. Our our conscience can only uh, really be cleaned and made clear by our creator. He can make us guilt-free. Our consciences can also lead us down the wrong path if we give way to false guilt, which is a huge issue. There's some key differences between false and real guilt. Real guilt's super helpful. If we've hurt someone else, if we've sinned against God, it motivates us. It's like a, you know, blaring red emergency light that can move us towards reconciliation and healing. But false guilt is impossible because God can't forgive it because there's nothing to forgive. False guilt includes petty things that we've already dealt with, but we feel guilty over. You know, for me, sometimes it's when I yell at my kids and I apologize, I pray about it, I work to improve my behavior, and then I'm just laying up at four in the morning because I feel guilty that I've scarred them for life, you know, or whatever. Parents, you've been there, right? You've been there a few times. Uh, another example is one of my kids who will remain nameless because this one's embarrassing. Uh, but uh, when they were very little, okay, so it could be one of the three, I'm not going to say who, when they were very little, when they were in the pool, and they were very little, like four, okay, they started noticing women's bumps, okay? <laughs> women's bumps, breast, in case someone's like, what is he talking about? Yeah, breast, okay. Uh, and uh, it, it was just noticing it because it was like, oh, that's like there. I mean, it wasn't like a lustful thing or anything like that, but this particular old child felt very guilty about it. And I remember seeing the little goggled eyes, you know, half filled up with water, the way kids' goggles always are. I can remember it like it's yesterday. Mommy or Daddy, I just look at that woman's bumps. Back underwater, like having to get it off their chest, you know? That's another example of false guilt. Very silly example. Uh, But false guilt robs us of positive emotions, doesn't it? It kills our initiative, it poisons our relationships, and it stunts our growth. It's totally useless. After you've confessed it and you've dealt with it before God, it's gone. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he even says this, he remembers them no more. So feeling false guilt is a sin. It's a sin against the cross of Jesus Christ because he already shed his blood for that sin. We need to keep in mind that when delving into the confusing waters of our conscience, that it's not the only or even the primary source of moral information according to the Bible, meaning our conscience is not our primary moral compass, the Bible is. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, the conscience can be seared with a hot iron. That means that our conscience can become desensitized to sin. On the other hand, we just read in Hebrews that it can also be washed by the blood of Christ. And many of you are racked by guilt. You are racked by guilt. And you know, Jesus doesn't want that for you. If you know and love him, he wants to clear your conscience. And he's the only one who can do it. 
Another uh, way that we struggle, another reason why we struggle with having a clear conscience is we, we confuse uh, uh, guilt from punishment. We confuse guilt from punishment. So is guilt punishment from God for the Christ follower? In other words, does Jesus, for the Christ follower, does, does Jesus punish you with guilt? No, true guilt is a gift. But we're not to live in it. We're to confess our sins and move on. Hebrews 12, 6 says this, Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So there's a difference between discipline and uh, punishment, right? Loving parents discipline their kids, don't they? You have to or they might die. Really. I mean, when they're little, they need, I wanted my kids to hear me the first time when I said stop. I didn't want them to learn to ignore that and, and, you know, only listen to dad when he starts yelling because what if they start running out in the street? They need to, when I say stop, you stop. And if they didn't stop, I'd put them in timeout or hang them by their toes and whip them with licorice sticks. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm going to get somebody's going to email me this week. You would be shocked at the things that people think because they're not listening. Listen, I did not hang my kids upside down and whip them with licorice. I don't do that, all right? Oh, my word. Okay. Um, So we have to discipline. But it's very different from punishment. Punishment is God's penalty. It settles a debt like a criminal paying the price for his crime through financial restitution or prison time. But Christ already paid the price. He already became a criminal. He already, we, we've all committed treason against God by going our own way, and he became guilty of that crime in our place. Romans 3 verse 21 says this, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and didn't punish those who sinned in past times. For he was looking ahead and including them and what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we're made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Now, there's a lot to talk about in this passage. I don't have enough to get to, I don't have enough time to get to it all tonight, but I do want to make a few comments. God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. When the Bible speaks of the law, it's speaking of uh, God's system that he had in place before Christ came to the earth. And he had laws, hundreds of them, that he gave his people that all, they, they broke down into subcategories underneath each of the Ten Commandments. And he gave them these laws to protect them and to enable them to be in a close relationship with God. The problem, nobody, according to Romans 3 there, nobody kept him. Not even one. No one. No one has ever kept God's law except for Jesus Christ. 
He had no sin, which made him the only one capable of paying our debt for not keeping the law. I mean, think with me for a second about the grace of God and even providing the law, let alone Christ. I mean, here he created all people, were created by him and for him. He gave us the gift of life. It's priceless, right? We owe him quite a bit. And all of us have broken his law. Everybody. That would be like me giving my kids a car and them deciding to use it as a stress reliever, bashing it with a sledgehammer, you know, whenever something didn't go their way. You know, we have, we have made a mess of things. All we have to do is just look around us, right? Humanity destroys itself. Then God provided us a way to steer us away from sin through the law, and we couldn't keep it. And that was the whole point of the law, to point towards Christ, that we needed one who would be our substitute. In other words, we deserve death, separation from God because of our inability to keep the law. And Jesus became perfect in our place. He literally became sin. So he became the murderer, the adulterer, the one who was apathetic and indifferent towards God. He became all of that to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. And we need to remember that Jesus is fully man now. Did you know that? He's fully God, but he's also fully man. When he ascended to the Father, he still has flesh. He knows what it's like to cry. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be tempted. The Bible says he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. He knows what you're going through. There's not an emotion you have, a thought you have, that he can't relate to. There's no way any of us will ever comprehend. I don't even think on the other side of eternity, honestly, what it was like for our Savior to take on sin, to become sin, the horror that that would have been. And he did it for you, and he did it for me. And maybe some of you tonight are at a place where you know Jesus and you need to put away false guilt. You want a clear conscience before God. You can, I want to lead you in prayer just real briefly here. Pray with me. You know Jesus and you want a clear conscience. Jesus, I confess my sin to you. Right now in your own heart and mind, you can be specific about what that sin is. And Lord, I, I feel guilty about, and go ahead and name that sin, whatever it is from the past that you've already confessed, if that's the case. But I thank you that you've forgiven me, that you've separated my sins as far as the east is from the west, and you remember them no more. Lord, I choose now, as an act of my sanctified and redeemed will, I choose not to, not to allow false guilt to root itself in my mind. I choose right now, Lord, and ask for your help to, when it does sneak in, to simply ignore it and give it, give it no fuel. Lord, protect me from the downward spiral of false guilt that I may live free in you, that I might cast my anxiety and my worries on you. Thank you for taking my sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Now for others, maybe you, you took up the challenge that I offered last week and you, you have been pursuing Christ. You've been pursuing truth and you're, you're convinced. Do you know there's no red tape there's no prerequisites. So my daughter was very young. I remember she fell in a pool and she was drowning. And she held her hands up in the water and I could see her eyes peering out of the water. She held her hands up. Her only hope was for us to rescue her. 
At that moment, she's not going to think to herself, you know what, I'm going to try to get somebody to give me swim lessons. Right? Because there's no time for that. She needed somebody right then to jump in the water. That's how it is with Christ. We have no ability to be right with God on our own. We just accept Jesus' gift. That's it. It, It's, we, we accept his free gift of salvation and we allow him to be the one who steers us towards himself. We don't have to get anything right in our life. He'll make us right after he rescues us from sin, but you don't have to clean yourself up. And I want to lead you in prayer right now if, if that's something that you're ready and willing to do. If you're ready to allow Christ to rescue you from your sin and give you the abundant life, uh, pray with me now, please. Just repeat after me in your mind and heart. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I realize that now. I've sinned against you, Lord, I confess my sin to you and I I pray for your forgiveness. And I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for the cross that you shed your blood for me to pay the penalty that I deserved. I receive your free gift of salvation, your rescue from sin right now. And I thank you that you have removed my sin as far as the east is from the west and you remember it no more. Lord, I thank you for your resurrection that you rose again, conquering sin and death so that I might have new life and new hope in you. I receive your cross. I receive your resurrection now. I receive the free gift of salvation. And thank you that no one and nothing can ever separate me from you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.